With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Hey Mets fans, welcome to episode 215 of Amazing Avenue Audio, the official podcast of your SB Nation New York Mets site, Amazing Avenue. My name is Brian Salvatore, thank you for joining us on this week's show. The winter meetings have wrapped up, the Mets didn't do anything, the Nationals are silly, and uh, all is right in the world, at least temporarily. So first up, Chris McShane and I talk about the winter meetings. Uh, You can hear my son in the background, apparently he wants to say something about the Mets uh, rule draft, rule 5 draft picks, or lack thereof, or something so that's ben he's sharing his opinion and now chris and i are going to share ours about the mets at the winter meetings well chris the uh the winter meetings are almost through now the mets have not done anything at the winter meetings but there is some winter meetings news to discuss now uh, earlier in the week it was floated that the nationals were going to attempt to acquire either chris sale from the white Sox or um Andrew McCutcheon from the Pirates, both of which sent some amount of shivers up a Mets fan's spine, especially Sale. That rotation would have been really scary with Sale in it. But Sale went to Boston. McCutcheon is still a Pirate as we record. But the Nationals did make a trade. They traded for um, White Sox, and I'm putting this next word in quotations, center fielder, uh, Adam Eaton. (laughs) And in return, they gave up three of their top ten prospects, including Lucas Giolito, who's either the second or third prospect in baseball, depending who you talk to about that, um, as well as the overall number 38 prospect in baseball, according to MLB, Reynaldo Lopez, and a uh, a really, really good um, minor league arm who was uh, the Nationals' first-round pick last year, Dane Dunning. So... I think it's easy for us to say LOL Nationals here, but LOL Nationals, right? (laughs) Yeah, I mean, certainly looking at the trade in isolation, that's how I feel about it. Uh, You know, for some reason, I might have hangups about Adam Eaton that are unjustified. I was talking about this, uh, you know, a couple days ago, just when he seemed like a trade candidate uh, and and wasn't a guy who's being traded, but... I don't know if it's that he shares the name with the former mediocre to, to bad pitcher. Yeah. Like I, I might knock him a little bit for that. That's not necessarily fair at all. Uh, it, you know, it has nothing to do with him, but it might be that it might be that he was. And man, even, you know, it's funny. Even Mike Trout struggled a little bit when he first came up, but he, 
proceeded to be so good after that first cup of coffee that we all forget that that existed. Right. So in that sense, Mike, Mike Tratt still spoils it for everybody. And Bryce Harper did too. You know, guys who came up and were just super highly touted and lived up to it right away. Uh, you know, Harper really did it more quickly, I think, in, in, in terms of time between call-up and being at least an above-average major leaguer. But it might be some of that. So, you know, I think the common phrase is prospect fatigue. Um, with this, you know, Eaton was a highly touted prospect who it might be young major leaguer fatigue. Right. Uh, you know, and whether it is perhaps – I don't think I was – someone who specifically did this but if you're into fantasy baseball <clears throat> and you went into 2013 thinking that oh this is the next big thing then you know this this outfielder guy's gonna steal a bunch of bases and be a good hitter and then he kind of had a mediocre year didn't spend the whole year in the majors so you know he's a guy who i think has existed in in a part of the baseball world that we rarely see as mets fans um but he's been good. You know, he's he's been an above average hitter in three full seasons uh in a row since he joined the White Sox uh for the twenty fourteen season. There's you know, there's enough to like there with him as a player. I think it, it, it's fair to say he's a good to possibly very good player. Uh, it depends how much you buy into the defensive metrics about him. And yet you know, I, I sit here and I, I, I'm a little bit floored by what the Nationals gave up. They give up a lot. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, if the return was somebody who was a true center fielder who could, you know, who could be seen as an insurance policy against Harper walking, if it was somebody who was guaranteed to, I mean, nothing's a guarantee. What was was more than likely going to give them better production in their outfield than they got last year? That would be a different story. I don't think Eaton necessarily guarantees any of that. Do you? Uh no, I don't think it's a guarantee. On, on or any or, of or those. even, or even is uh, you know strongly likely to do any of those things. Yeah, I mean, he's been, and and look, we we have firsthand experience of watching a guy who put up nearly identical lines for three years, uh, <laughs> and then exploded upon spending his first season in a Nationals uniform. But that is true. You know that what Daniel Murphy did is by far the outlier. You know, a, a guy, especially a guy with that much major league experience, changing drastically you know in either direction is is pretty rare so you know i think it's easy i think you know a lot of our listeners are probably familiar or very familiar with war it's easy to look at that uh you know the Fangraphs edition of it oh wow he was a six-win player last year but a, a lot of it has to do with how much you buy into his defense mm-hmm. you know so i think this is a this is a nice player. I think it makes the Nationals better in 2017 than they would have been otherwise. Um, you know, if, if they have one of their starters get hurt and Giolito is 
shoving with the White Sox, then maybe it won't seem that way. But right now, I think it's fair to say they got better for next year. But I don't know that they got drastically better. And man, you know, <laughs> it, it, if those pitchers pan out, and they don't all have to pan out, but if, you know, if either two of them are, are very good or one is great and the others don't do anything, um, you know, it, it, I think it hurts them long term. I think that's fair to say right now. I would also go as far as to say I think it uh, it seems perplexing to me that – how can I phrase this? This doesn't seem like the type of move – that you trade your best prospect in. Right. It just doesn't seem like that to me. Every No matter what, I, I, I've i thought about this a lot today, and I keep coming back to that idea of like, all right, if the Mets were to trade Rosario today, who would I want in return for Rosario? And it wouldn't be Adam Eaton. Yeah. And that's, yeah. A, that's I think, what, what is a sticking point for me just intellectually here is, like you said, I think it will make them better in 2017 – Quite possibly, I don't think it's a lock or anything close to a lock, but I think it's gonna it's gonna help them in 2017. You know, you're not running Ian Desmond out there in center field. Not that he was bad, but you know, you're you're putting an outfielder in the outfield, and, and there's there's value in that. But I just, to me, this is a huge haul to give up for something. And I think if it was for McCutcheon, if same deal for McCutcheon, still would have been probably an overpay, but. McCutcheon has you know one down year on his resume, but other than that, he's been an excellent, excellent player for the Pirates. Right. Well, yeah, and it, that's it, at least with McCutcheon, I think if you gave up that same return, you can point to that and say, "All right, so he had one bad season. You know, maybe, uh, it, you know, maybe he just wasn't a hundred percent at any point during the season." The track record is excellent. He's not that old. You fully expect that he'll bounce back. Uh, that, to me, is scarier than what Eaton could do. Now, I am sure in the course of 18 or 19 games against each other, there will be moments, <laughs> as there are with any player on a division rival, that Adam Eaton you know, drives us a little crazy. Uh, but, yeah, I... You know, we we heard one thing uh, about the Nationals this week that was widely reported and then denied by Scott Boris. But you know, we have no reason. I, I have every reason to believe the report that Bryce Harper wants a very significant contract when he is ready to hit free agency. You're being a little bit modest here, Chris. He wants a four hundred million dollar contract. Well, I, I in past uh, predictions, I think I've predicted five hundred. Yeah. Billion for billion, no. <laughs> <laughs> hey, why not? No, uh, half a billion, five hundred million um, for him. So, yeah, specifically, it was something in the neighborhood of ten years, four hundred million. Uh, you know, I think whether or not that's realistic has more to do with him settling in at what he did in twenty sixteen and twenty fourteen, as opposed to you know, his insanely awesome 2015 season. Um, but that report would seem to be true based partly on this trade, you know? Yeah. Um, you, you, 
selling out the top of the farm and they still have other prospects. You know, I know BP had um, Robles ahead of Giolito going into 2017. So, you know, by that measure, at least they didn't give up their top prospect, but certainly gave up who I think some people would still say was their top prospect. Mm-hmm. Uh, and even if not a, a very high end part of it. So even just three of their top 10 prospects. Yeah. I mean, so just based on, you know, that, and it's, it's a little bit shorthanded to just take three from the Mets top 10, but you know, you might be looking at something like Rosario Gazelman and Nimmo, um, you know, maybe Becerra, somebody else, you know, somebody else from the back end of the, the top 10. Um, and I think that's something that would, that would make Mets fans uncomfortable. With good reason. Yeah. Um, and let's move on to other winter meetings um, business here. There has not been a trade on the Mets, and despite the Mets being very active in their desire to trade Jay Bruce, specifically to Jay, trade Jay Bruce for a bullpen arm, although Sandy Alderson has been quick to point out that they're looking for overall value of package, not necessarily just a bullpen arm, but it seems like the bullpen is where they're really focusing their attention. But nothing has happened yet. Um, there's a number of reasons for that. People are citing a very slow uh, winter meetings in general, specifically for outfield bats. There's a lot of bats still out there that have not signed, and that once they sign, that will help to shape the trademark a little bit. Uh, it's also seeming that relief pitchers are being valued at an all-time high, and so you get a lot of players, sorry, a lot of teams rather, not wanting to part with their good middle relief pitchers for any for something as. Um, I guess, I don't even know what I'm looking for. They, they want more than Jay Bruce. They want more than a one-year affordable contract for a guy who's going to hit you 30 home runs. Which, you know, as somebody who came of, of age in the 90s, I cannot imagine a middle reliever not going for Jay Bruce in 1998. You know, that, that, that just seems insane to me. Um, but let's talk Bruce for a second. Do you think the Mets will eventually get their above-average bullpen piece for Jay Bruce? Hmm. Yeah, I mean, above average isn't that high of a bar to set. Especially not in the bullpen. Yeah, and I, I think I, I think it'll happen well before spring training. But even if it gets to that point where, you know, some team goes into it and you're not necessarily waiting for an injury, but they just kind of look around and realize, hmm, you know, that that power – that Bruce provides could help us. Um, I, I I think the Mets will get, I don't think what they're asking for is exorbitant. Uh, maybe it is right now in ter- like behind closed doors with what we don't know. Maybe they're, you know, asking for a team's best reliever or, you know, higher end prospects than Bruce is worth. But, you know, we, it, not that you should necessarily take everything completely seriously when you hear it, but uh, I think one of the things Alderson said to the press late today was that we, you know, we we could do something right now, but we certainly don't have to. Uh, and I'm paraphrasing a little bit, but you know that that to me sounds. Uh, I'll take him at his word on that. It sounds honest enough. You know, we we they probably could trade Bruce for very little. 
or less than the average or above average reliever that they might be seeking. Uh, but they might, you know, think that they can do better if they wait. So it's interesting when we did our uh, emergency Cespedes podcast last week, one of the things that uh, one of us floated, it might've been me. I had a couple of beers. I said you, so I'm not sure if we can say with any certainty who floated it, but the idea that part of the reason they were able to afford the Cespedes deal is that they were knocking 13 million off the books for this year with trading Bruce, that that signing Cespedes essentially meant they had to trade Bruce. And that was uh, somewhat hinted at today by a comment that Alderson made where he said that um, currently the payroll is at about $150 million, but it's not going to stay there, that they are going to have to shed some salary there. So I wonder if there's a point where Alderson has to trade Bruce for, you know, that fifth best bullpen arm. Yeah. Yeah, I mean... It, I don't think we're there yet, though. No. And I think it's not at a point of desperation where other teams can, you know, kind of hold that against them and and say, well, hey, you can't afford to pay this guy. Give him to us. <laughs> right. Um. But if it came down to that in the end, I think if they if they just wanted to dump him, some team out there would take him. Oh yeah, for like like for literally nothing. I think uh, you know some team would be able to find room in their budget for for that kind of player. So I'm not too worried about you know about that. Uh, but I, I do hope it kind of resolves itself sooner than later. Yeah, yeah. Um, other news from the winter meetings, the Mets approached the Royals about what the asking price for Wade Davis would be, and they were answered with uh, Ahmed Rosario, which means it's not happening. Um, does that price seem extraordinarily high to you? Uh, yes. (laughs) (laughs) And I love Wade Davis. Really, really do. You know, I mean, he is, uh, I generally like relief pitching. I'm I'm probably more into it than the average baseball fan. Uh, Wade Davis is hands down one of the best. Oh yeah. Uh, but you know, there's two things. He's got one year of control left before he's eligible to be a free agent himself. And if he stays healthy, he will be as expensive as the big guys who are out there this year. Uh, and if he's healthy is at least somewhat in question because he had a couple little flare ups, uh, nothing that ultimately required surgery, but a couple flare ups along the way in the 2016 season. So yeah. those two things combined would make me uncomfortable with giving up Rosario's entire career. Uh, especially since Rosario had such a good year and seems, you know, you, you never know how things are going to play out. But it seems like he is the guy who can take over, even while this dribble Cabrera is still here, and take over the starting gig at shortstop and allow Cabrera to be, you know, sort of uh, Ben Zobris light. Right. Uh, you know, I, I don't know if he's going to play in the outfield at all, but, you know, a guy who can start for you three or four times a week at three different infield positions and, you know, 
hold them hold them down. So uh the yeah, Mets that, have a nice number of those players this year, by the way. Yeah. Did Flores and Cabrera and Reyes and uh TJ Rivera. It's good. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, it's uh you know, I think I'm not very high on Soler. Uh, who the Cubs gave up to get Davis in the end. Right. But, you know, he's on a very affordable contract. He has that in common with Eaton. Uh, you know, there is obviously some power to his game. You know, he hasn't played a ton in the majors, uh, but he said his home runs. The overall numbers aren't fantastic. But, you know, that's – I think that's somewhere that the Cubs could afford to deal from a little bit better than the Mets can with a shortstop. Yeah. That's correct. Um, so, yeah, um, that brings us to um, former Met Jerry Blevins, who's reportedly seeking a three or, depending on certain uh, speculation, four-year deal for his left-handed relief services. And everything seems to be pointing to the fact that the Mets do not want to go multi-year with the reliever. Um, Alderson has more or less said so twice this week, although he has qualified each time saying, you know, there are certain people who obviously would, would go against that. And if, if they felt like it was the best player out there and they would do it to get the deal done, they wouldn't necessarily be happy about it. None of that seems to be pointing too extremely at Jerry Blevins and the Mets reuniting this year, which I know we were both big Blevins fans, both, um, as a pitcher and as a personality, so that that's that's a real bummer. But do you think that he'll get that three year deal someplace? Uh, may, yeah, maybe I'll go slight. I'll lean slightly towards yes. Yeah, um, I don't think I'll have any trouble getting it. Actually, I, yeah, I think that the market's just playing out that way. Yeah, especially because, and even though it would, you know it was only this season, he he fared better against right-handed pitching. Sorry, right-handed hitting than he had in the past. Uh, you know, I think it's kind of foolish to buy into single-season splits, especially when they go against the uh, you know the the trend that a player has established over the course of his career. Uh, but you know, it's a modest amount of money. Uh, you know, the, the thing Anthony Tacoma had reported that Blevins was looking for, you know, three years between five and six million a year. That's really not that high. Um, so I think he could get that. Maybe he has to settle for two years. The The number on the salary end seems about right. Yeah. Um, you know, and he, he's coming off a better season and has better numbers, I think, generally in his career than most of the other left-handed relievers that are out there. So, you know, I, I wish the Mets were in a spot that keeping the guy who only wants $5 million a year was just like, yeah, okay. Yeah. You know? Um, and maybe if they had traded Bruce, they'd be more open to that. But right now, I think with the money still on the books, they're just uh, they're being a little bit hesitant with everything. Just a little bit. They're a little bit less willing to commit right this second. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that's uh, you know, I think that's sort of an interesting thing with the the Bruce situation is that if that's holding you back from doing other things that are minor and you know, relatively speaking, 
you know, how many free agents are going to come off the board in the time between now right. and when you do get rid of Bruce's money. Yeah. So that's, uh, you know, that's, I guess, a little game of chicken to play. But, but, but yeah. But don't forget, you're also the guy who said that your offseason plan was sign Cespedes and nothing else. So, oh, no, I know. You know. I know. I'm not, I'm officially not complaining with Cespedes back in the fold. I know. I'm just teasing you. Yeah. Uh, I, I know I, I might be in the minority already a week later. <laughs> um, certainly, if the Mets don't do anything else over the next month, I'll, I, I expect to be one of very few people who's happy about it. But, but yeah, and I, I really like bringing Walker back too. I know some people are, you know, wishing that that, that money was spent elsewhere. But we've gone over that kind of in depth. Uh, I'm just I'm I'm content with where they are. I do hope that they add to the team if they can pull off a, a surprise trade that is a really good fit uh for somebody good. You know, hey, that's uh that's even better. But but yeah. All right, well, we have two quick emails to get to and then we will uh wrap up this part of the podcast. First email comes from Matt from Germany. He says, gentlemen, Henry Mejia has served a year of a suspension. He can apply for reinstatement. Am I correct? Technically, can he reapply now or does he have to wait two years? Uh, I thought it was two, but... I believe it is two. So yeah. Let's go into that assumption. If so, why would you not bring him back on a low-cost option as a bullpen piece? I understand he may not be in very good standing with the team, but what have they got to lose if he's learned his lesson? Uh, well, first of all, thanks for the email, Matt. Two things here. Um, just because he applies for reinstatement does not mean he will receive reinstatement. And yeah, that that's, I think, a big part. Yeah, so until he is, in fact, reinstated, which may never happen, the Mets aren't going to touch him with a 10-foot pole. N- nor should they. They shouldn't be doling out money to a player who might be told he cannot play. So that's not going to happen. But also, you know, you say you hope he learned his lesson. The dude failed two drug tests. Or three. Three, I'm sorry. Three drug tests. <laughs> you know, learning his lesson doesn't... Now, you know, there have been lots of rumors and speculation about the fact that, that the, the drug test, that, that the testing was done. Well, what was the thing? That it was, it was, there was not enough time between the second and third test to let the drugs be fully out of his system. And so people are calling it unfair. Whether that's true or not, after your first test, if you're still if you fail another one, I, I lose a little bit of sympathy for you. If you fail that third one, I've lost pretty much all sympathy for you. And I think most of Major League Baseball feels the same way. I think it would be very, very different if this were four or five years later and he's been playing independent ball the whole time or you know whatever ball he can play. And there's four or five years and it's water under the bridge. I think it's still too recent, even if it was only uh, one year. I don't think they would do it. And I don't think they would do it after next season either. I just don't see Major League Baseball reinstating him anytime soon. Yeah. Yeah, I I agree with that. I will say that if they did, (laughs) I'd be on board, bring him back. Um, But I believe the Mets retain his rights uh, in, in that scenario. So say he does get reinstated, uh, which again is unlikely, but say he gets reinstated, they would still have the opportunity to do as they see fit. Uh, you know, I think he would still be under their team control. Uh, 
for as long as he, he would be otherwise. And the new CBA does not grant player service time during suspensions for PEDs. Ooh, interesting. Which was one of the wrinkles. There were many, but that, that is a, a difference from the previous one. So, you know, the time that he's already been out, I guess, would still count. Um, although I'm not sure that, you know, there might be some nuances with the lifetime ban. But whatever the case, to my understanding, if Henry Mejia got reinstated, the Mets would have the option to do what they want to do with him. So in that event, I would say keep him on board for sure. the reason that Matt brings up. Hey, you know, he'll be tested. You continue from there. Um, and maybe he can be pretty good out of the bullpen. So I agree. But again, I don't see it happening necessarily. No, uh, second, especially not with the lawsuit. <laughs> yeah, well, <laughs> yeah. Uh, second email of the week, and you can email the show yourself. Podcast at amazingavenueaudio.com. We would love to hear from you. Hey, y'all. So I know this may have been addressed in a previous podcast, but I couldn't help but notice that Yoenna Cespedes' contract and the new CBA were announced just hours apart from each other. Are the two inherently related, or is this merely a coincidence? Thanks, Win from Nashville. Um, I think by the time that the Cespedes contract was announced, people were more or less assuming the CBA was going to be agreed upon, and maybe that helped slightly move the conversation forward, but I don't think there's any real correlation here. Do you, Chris? No, I pretty much agree with what you said. You know, maybe there's a little bit more urgency uh, just just in case there was a lockout or anything like that, just to have it wrapped up. But, you know, the the things that go into effect, I think everyone would have assumed that the rules weren't going to change for this offseason. Right. You know, no matter what happened, it wouldn't be fair really to anyone to have rules change when the offseason process started, you know, right after the World Series ended. Um, so I think everybody probably assumed that it would be after next season that those things would go into effect, which is the case now. Uh, so yeah, I think it was coincidental, maybe, a you know, a slight sense of urgency, uh, just to get the good news out there early in the winter in the event that there was any kind of stoppage or lockout or whatever. Yep. I agree. Um, well, winter meetings, by the time you guys hear this, winter meetings will most likely be either over or just about wrapping up. Um, there might still be something done before the end of the year, but more than likely the Mets are going to be quiet for the next few weeks. You know, the, the Christmas season is never really a huge one for, uh, for free agent signings or trades or anything like that. But we'll still be here discussing the minutia of the Mets week in and week out. So uh, we'll talk to you guys next time. Forgotten Mets. I'm your host, Milo Tavy. I have the honor this week of discussing one of Sandy Alderson's first acquisitions as Mets general manager, Chin Long Hu. Hu, a middle infielder, came up through the Dodgers organization, spending five seasons in the minors. After earning MVP honors at the Futures game, Hu earned a September call-up in 2007. He was overmatched early in his big league career, 
batting 191 over parts of four seasons, but his last name gave commentators plenty of comedic material to work with. Well, after getting a single, I've been waiting to say this all night. Who's on first? Chin Lung Hu of the Dodgers. Who's on first? If Chin Lung Hu wasn't familiar with the works of Abbott and Costello at the beginning of his professional career, he certainly was by the end of it. The Mets traded a minor league pitcher for Hu in December of 2010, making him the organization's first Taiwanese-born player. Despite his status as a fringe prospect, Hu's presence was enough to warrant an introductory press conference. I'll let uh, Sandy take it away from here. Uh, we have uh, watched him play, scouted him, and uh, know him from his days with the Dodgers. Uh, he does have experience with uh, and uh, history with uh, manager Terry Collins, as well as others who are uh, currently in the organization. And I want to emphasize that uh, the decision uh, to acquire Chin Lung uh, was uh, a baseball decision. We, uh, who hit reasonably well for the Met in spring training, earning an opening day roster spot alongside fellow forgotten Met Brad Emus. Unfortunately, who was rarely on first during his Mets tenure. Aside from pinch running appearances, who reached base just twice in his 23 plate appearances that season, striking out 11 times in the process. Who was demoted to the Buffalo Bisons in May in what would prove to be his final big league season. Uh, who experienced a bout of the yips and suffered from blurred vision in AAA and briefly gave switch hitting a shot. Who signed a minor league deal with Philadelphia the next season, but failed his physical and wound up playing for the Southern Maryland Blue Crabs. Of the 11 Taiwanese-born Major League Baseball players, who remains the only one to ever play for the Mets? And that does it for another edition of Forgotten Mets. Until next time, I'm Milo Tavy. Welcome back. Greg Count and Steve Saipa here to talk minor leagues, Mets minor leagues with you once again. Uh, this time we're going to be talking about prospects 10 down through 4, because those are the ones that have been going up and that will be up by the time that you are listening to this, if you are listening to this when it drops, as you do. Um, so Steve, number 10, Wilmer Becerra. Tell me about Wilmer Becerra. Uh, well, we got him in the... He was the non-elite uh, prospect in the Ari Dickey trade. And he had a good season last year. And all of a sudden, in the second half of the season, he just stopped hitting for power. And that carried over into this season. And you can say that um, the torn labrum that he had this year um, contributed to that. But again, it, it extends back to last season when they changed his swing a little bit. And that's a pretty big red flag. That's that's pretty worrisome. But he did hit for more pa- uh, more contact this year and uh, better average. Right. Right. He hit uh, in 65 games this year. He hit 312, which is pretty good. But his slugging percentage was 393, which is not very good. Sure. But the, the optimist would say that Power is the last thing to come if it comes, and that you know, this is a guy who has the physical build to project power and is able to display it in batting practice. So, you know, it's it's if you're going to say like last year was was a wash, right? Um, 
you know, he, he improved in one area, came back in another area, which is the power. Um, I, I, I'm, I'm a little optimistic, I think. Um, even though, like, I, generally I'm more down on him than everyone else, but I think I'm more optimistic about his last season than I think maybe other people are, if that makes sense. Yeah, I mean, the, just the thing is that, you know, he really is not, you know, he's an outfielder. He really is not a center fielder. And he has a, a, a good enough arm that he can play right. So you really want to play him in right field, but without the power, you know, remanifesting itself, he really wouldn't profile well in right. Right. Which so, is a shame of everything. Right. And this is going to be a big year for him because, I mean, it's it's not necessarily a make-or-break year, but, like, it kind of is. Uh, he's still young, but you know, he's probably going to be in double A and he's probably going to need to show us something. Otherwise, you know, kind of going to lose that, uh, prospect status for us. I mean, top prospect status. So anyway, that's Wilmer Becerra, big year coming up. Uh, number nine is Tomas Nito. Nido. We'll figure it out eventually. Um, <laughs> So I, you know, uh, as we've spoken about before, a lot of our information on this guy comes from uh, that report that Baseball Prospectus put up this year. Um, they had somebody in Florida got to see him. Good reports, uh, good bat speed, hit for average, hit for a little power too, a little little bit of pop, and supposedly is a good receiver. So that's exciting, and. You know, it's going to be fun to watch him this year. He's going to be another one in Double A. So I guess that Double A team is going to be pretty uh, fun to watch. What do you think? Yeah, those Rumble ponies. Yeah. Oh God. I was actually looking on the website. <laughs> I wanted to see if I can get. So I should have gotten like a Binghamton Bees hat or something like that before it went away because it would have been vintage now. But now they're not selling it anymore. <laughs> Probably got to go on like eBay or something. I'm sure there's plenty there. Yeah. But, uh, but so yeah, um, you're excited about him or what? Yeah, um, I mean he 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 kind of has a little bit of you know he he hit for a pretty good average this year. He won the batting crown for the Florida State League. Um, he's always had some raw power. You know he he hit seven home runs last uh, this this past season, um, and he has a he's always had a reputation as a good um, receiver behind the plate. So I mean, he put everything together, and that's that's exciting. Let's just hope that he can keep it all going next season as well. Yep. Fair one much. thing that makes me kind of one thing that makes me kind of um, optimistic that he will is that he his strikeout rate he cut that nearly in half as compared to 2014, 2015. Yeah. Um, he maintained a similar walk rate and a similar BABIP. So I mean, it's not like he was just lucky. And just kind of things were going right for him constantly. I mean, he he made changes, and you saw the changes on the field and in the numbers. Yeah, I don't disagree with that. And and the video on him looks pretty good. I just the swing looks it looks like a solid swing. So I'm excited about him. Um, and so that's that's number nine. Uh, number eight is Justin Dunn. And I think this is a little low. I feel like I I, I personally think well i guess i because i ranked him there I, I would put him in the top six for sure um but 
he falls number eight on our list, uh, aggregated between you, me, and uh, Lucas. I, I, I mean, I've read your stuff on him. Uh, I think there's definitely a lot of reason to be optimistic about Dunn. And I think that I think that maybe we're a little we've kind of clouded him in a little bit of too much negativity because I think that at least some of the readers on the site uh, are getting that vibe from us. And uh, so, like, I you know what I mean? So, like, what do you think? So, talk us back off the ledge about Justin Dunn and talk him up a little bit. I mean, like, I know you're not as high on him as other people, but like, you're not that down. Yeah, I I might be the. I might be the worst person to do that. Yeah, but like you've seen him, uh-huh. so like, t- t- tell me good things. Come on. <laughs> well, he, I mean, he has a good fastball. Yeah, uh, you know, it, it sits mostly in the low to mid nineties. Um, the highest I've seen him top out is ninety six. There's been a lot of, I think, miss. I don't know. I, I'm hesitant to say misinformation out there, but I mean, people say like, you know, he hits ninety nine. Um, a lot of those reports of him hitting, you know, 98, 99 come from earlier in the year when he was still a reliever at Boston College and he could put, you know, 100% into every pitch. Whereas when he converted to being a starter, he's really topping out around 95, 96. Um, not that there's anything wrong with 95, 96. (laughs) Not that there's anything wrong with that. Still a good fastball. (laughs) Right, but I mean... Little less exciting than ninety eight, ninety nine, but, but um, he has a good slider. Uh, it has a curveball that he complements it with, and a changeup. Um, the slider is his 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 best secondary pitch, and it, it flashes plus. Uh, his curveball, you know, it's coming along. It's average, I guess, and his changeup is kind of new to his arsenal because as a reliever, he really never needed, you know a fourth pitch, let alone really a, th- a third pitch at the curveball. Mm-hmm. Um, the biggest thing that makes me so negative about him and so worried is just really the lack of stamina. I mean, and, and that's what comes, I guess, you know, that's what comes with having so recently converted into being a starting pitcher. But, I mean, he could not maintain his, his fastball velocity really at all. I mean... How many innings? First inning, um, I have my, <laughs> I have my uh, game notes over here. Okay. The first inning fastball, for what start was this? Nine five. So that was his, that was the last start that he made with Brooklyn. That was, I think, Brooklyn's last game period against Staten Island. Ninety four. And this is the first inning. Ninety four. Ninety one. Ninety one. Ninety four. Ninety. Ninety. Ninety one. Ninety. Second inning, 91, 95, 95, 92, 91, 91, 91, 91, 90, 92. Third inning, 91, 89, 90, 90, 89, 90. So, you know. I see what you, I see where you're going with that. I see what, I see little... what you're doing there. <laughs> the, so, so, right, the, so the, the, the optimist would say that he had been pitching for a long time, long season, very last game of the season. He's a little gassed. Understandable. It's, and then for a guy who was a recent convert to starting. So I, I think there's still a lot to be excited about here. And yeah, I mean, that's my contribution. Has, <laughs> he has the floor. Yeah, he, he has probably a pretty good reliever. That's not right. bad. Could be a, yeah, pretty good reliever. So at worst, 
that's pretty good. So anyway, let's move on from Dunn. We talked about Dunn a lot. Seven and six. Kind of want to lump these two together because they have similar. I don't know. I just I always think of them together because they've been around forever. So number seven, Gavin Cicchini. Number six, Brandon Nimmo. Uh, what do we think that the so? I guess I have to separate them because you are much higher on Brandon Nimmo than the rest of us. So Gavin Cicchini, what what what's he going to be? I mean, realistically, I think that he I mean, he's, guess, he's he's a he's a bench player, right? Yeah, I think so. So I like I've I've mentioned like looking at his stats. Sometimes I'll be like, hey, he's like a three hundred hitter. That's pretty good. And then other times I'll be like, yeah, but that's really all. Right. I don't think that I don't I don't really foresee the power coming through, uh, especially with the way that his swing is geared. It's just it's so short. Like he shortened it up so much that it's so geared towards contact. I can't I just can't see him being able to generate much power against major league pitching, you know, from no. that swing. And then you couple that with the fact that right now he's not a short. He's not a left side of the infield player. Can't throw the ball. Um, we haven't seen him even tried at, at second base, but part of my problem is that the issues at shortstop were not just limited to his throwing. They were limited. They were a function of poor mechanics, poor footwork, uh, poor hands even. Uh, and I just don't think that, I don't necessarily think it's going to translate that well, even to second base. So when, once you start doing that, it puts that much more pressure on the bat and I just don't see it. So I think this is a and little you bit that of... I'm the negative. <laughs> well, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this is this is the one guy I just um, I can't get behind. Um, no, I, I have I have negative leanings towards other players in the list, but this guy I just I just think that this ranking is far too aggressive. Yeah, like I, I've I think it's in our write up is that. If I could do it over, I would probably rank him a little lower. And I feel like we might just have always been ranking him in the top, just kind of out of habit. And really, at this point, with the addition of other players, um, him, you know, solidifying kind of what he is as a player at this point, that he probably, I don't know if he you could justify maybe him falling out of the top 10, but he's, he should be a little higher on the list, I think. Yeah. yeah. Okay, so we've we've talked about him a lot because he was also in the Arizona Fall League, which we love to uh, to cover. Um, hey, hey, when was the last time we talked about Tivo? <laughs> he was in the news today, I think. Uh, but we're not going to go there. Um, so Brandon Nimmo, number six. You are high on Brandon Nimmo. Um, I think that I am around this area on Brandon Nimmo. I kind of think that he is going to be a uh, cromulent. Uh, platoon player. I think that he can be on a major league roster. I think he can contribute off the bench. Um, you seem to be more of the mind that he can play every day. Is that right? Uh, yeah, I would play him five days out of the week. You know, sit him against really the toughest lefties. Um, I think a lot of the issues with Nemo is like he's constantly changing the swing and you know, I don't know. Who who knows what next year is going to bring? You know, he changed the swing last winter, and he hit lefties better than he hit right-handed pitchers, which is oh, you know, which has always been his issue. Is that going to be a permanent thing now? Is that 
just luck. Like I, I don't, I don't, I don't know. I don't know. Yeah, no. But the fact that he did, the fact that he did hit lefty so well this year. I mean, obviously it's the PCL, so you can look at the stats. I mean, you can't look at the numbers, but you know the the trend of him hitting lefties as well is encouraging. That's always been kind of his Achilles heel. He could play all three center field, uh, all three outfield positions. Uh, you know, he's at least you know cromulent at center, which is you know a, a yeah, and a you know it's, it's a good thing. Yeah, and he's you know on the knocking on the door of you know major league baseball at this point. So yeah, well, that's you, also, know, you know another optimistic point is that. He missed. He basically didn't have an off season last year because he had that foot injury, right? And mm-hmm. missed at least several weeks. Several weeks, and then he somehow even still comes out and has a really good year. Um, I think that any evaluation of his year last year has to be positive. So, um, yeah, there's there's some encouraging signs there. And um, as of today, he's probably going to be on the twenty five man. So we'll see what happens. Um, Number five, Dom Smith, our boy Dom Smith. Uh, I think that you know, with between us and Jeff over at BP, it's we are, I guess, going to be the low people on Dom Smith. But uh, you know, I'm I'm okay with that. I I think that his ceiling is not that high. I think that he has trouble. He's going to have trouble with major league velocity. I think that the power is the only way the power is going to come is if he kind of changes his approach to be gear be geared uh, more towards pulling the ball. But right now it's just kind of like a falling out of the box, like slap it to left field type of approach. And I'm just not very optimistic. Um, I mean, I'm optimistic in that he's going to play in the majors. I'm just not optimistic that he's going to be better than Lucas Duda. No, I mean, Duda's a pretty decent first baseman. Um, he gets on base at a high rate, and he has, you know, all the power. And Smith just doesn't have the power. I just don't see it, you know. Yep. I don't know. I mean, he's going to play in Vegas. He's probably going to hit for power there, I mean, because everyone does. And people are probably going to be very excited about him. And I just don't think he's going to live up to it. But I think he's going to play in a major, so it's... You know, I mean, it's it's a good player, so it's a good prospect. So I think we've talked about Dom Smith enough. <laughs> <laughs> I think so. Uh, yeah. Uh, and so finally, number four, Desmond Lindsay, who I'm just I just really like. I I just find him to be a very exciting player. I think that he I think that by this time next year he might be. If if some of the guys ahead of him graduate, like Rosario and Gazelman. Um, I would not shock me at all if, if Desmond Lindsay is the number one prospect in our system at the end of next year. He's just got physicality. If it, if... He's got a good approach, physicality. I mean, he's got a great body. I mean, it's just it's he's got the he's got the total package if he could stay healthy. Yes, and the fact that he's been he was playing compromise last season and still was able to hit as well as he did and field as well as he did is pretty encouraging if you kind of look at it like that too. Yeah, how good can he be if he is healthy? Right, I think this, I think he has one of the higher ceilings in the system, especially among position. I mean, he's the second-ranked position player on our list, so obviously we're pretty high on him. But um, I just think that there's a lot to be excited about here. So, you know, he'll probably start the season in Colombia, 
and play against, you know, full season, first time get, getting into full season ball, so we'll have plenty of opportunity to see him and see how he does there. So, all right, so that's 10 through 4. Uh, I think that next week we'll probably talk about the top three, maybe a little bit more. Um, Steve, anything else you got? No, that's about it, unless you want to talk about Tebow. <laughs> Okay, quickly, Tebow, <laughs> Tebow is going to be assigned to minor league camp, right? That's what Sandy Allerson came out and said today? I guess I, I had anything that Tebow is relevant today. Ah, okay, so yeah, that, that was it, that was it. Uh, Sandy was asked about Tebow, and he said, I, I think kind of snarkily that he's not going to be in the major league camp, so something along those lines. So that's your Tebow update, uh, got <laughs> to make the people happy. And um, so that's all we got for this week. And we will see you again uh, next week. Hello, this is Aaron York for Mason Avenue Audio. And we are right in the midst of the winter meetings. They began on Sunday night. They're going to keep going for... I was going to say the next few days, but it's Wednesday for me. They'll keep going until around Thursday, and then baseball will settle down for the winter. But over the past few days, before we get into holiday season, where news is hard to come by, there's been a flurry of activity from beat writers, from general managers. The Boston Red Sox made a huge blockbuster deal to acquire Chris Sale from the White Sox and to become what Yankees general manager Brian Cashman called the Golden State Warriors of baseball. So it looks like Boston is going to be the favorite to win the World Series once we get into action in early 2017. But right now, we're talking about the Mets. We're talking about what are they going to do with Jay Bruce and Curtis Granderson. Are they going to be able to, are they going to, be able to improve the bullpen before the end of the winter meetings, the biggest rumor flying around so far was that the Mets are much more willing to trade Jay Bruce than Curtis Granderson, which makes sense because Granderson has been a really great offensive player for them since he signed signed his four-year deal three years ago, but especially over the past two years. And, of course, you have the clubhouse leadership, which is important for a team, even though you can't quantify it, it's important when this team is going to contend for the postseason, and especially since they just gave Ioannis Cespedes a lot of money, and he's got the reputation to be somewhat of a wild card. So I'm sure Granderson's clubhouse presence is being factored somewhat into this, but he's also been a really valuable guy. He's he had 30 home runs last year. He batted at the top of the order. He walked a bunch. Some fans might underrate him because of his low batting average. He certainly struck out enough last year, but he is a really important part of the Mets lineup, so they are going to be hesitant to deal him unless another team blows him away. At least that's the impression we get from reading all these tweets and reports that have come in over the past two days. One name that the Mets seem to be interested in acquiring, well, actually, there are two of them. One was Brad Brock, the right-handed relief pitcher for the Orioles, and that was a trade rumor for 
either Jay Bruce or Curtis Granderson. I think the Orioles would probably have to throw in something else to be fair, although the team control aspect of the deal might make up for that. Brock, who really has blossomed over the past two years with the Orioles. Last year, he put up closer-type numbers with a 2.05 ERA, 1.04 whip, 92 strikeouts, and just 25 walks in 79 innings. So that's something you could stick right at the end of the bullpen. He is a Freehold, New Jersey native. Went to college at Monmouth, so he's a Jersey Shore guy, and he would be a great asset to acquire if the Mets were able to get a deal done with Baltimore. And another player that the Mets were rumored to be checking in on was free agent relief pitcher Brad Ziegler. He spent last year, he started with Arizona, got shipped to Boston, and then, and he's been a, that sidewinding right-handed relief pitcher, really started turning into a closer with Arizona because his Lefty, left-handed splits, the left-handers against him, they, they hit him a little harder than righties, but he still keeps the ball in the park against them, and he, he's so good at getting ground balls. He gets, uh, he gets over 60% in pretty much every season. He's been below 3.5 ERA for his entire career. He was, he, his ERA was even more outstanding last season, and Ziegler's just been a really consistent player who wasn't always given the chance to close, probably due to his unorthodox delivery, but he he's turned into a very balanced, very solid relief pitcher. Not a lot of strikeouts. Last year might have been an exception as he struck out more than seven batters per nine innings, but his his game is ground balls and he's gotten them with a great success over the past over the past few years. The one bugaboo with him is walks, which is strange for a guy who pitches with so much contact, but when his walks are low, he's just getting the worm burners over and over and keeping the ball in the park, which is what you want a relief pitcher to, to do. So those are two big names in relief pitching that the Mets have been looking at. You have Brock as a trade candidate, Ziegler as a free agency guy, and It'd be cool if the Mets found a way to acquire one of them without giving up too much or paying too much money. But who knows what Wednesday, as I'm recording this on Wednesday morning, who knows? There could be a whole new batch of rumors. There could be trades. There could be other teams making trades, which causes the Mets to make a trade. We don't know. All we know is that the Red Sox look really good and the Mets are more likely to trade away Jay Bruce than Curtis Granderson and... I would be surprised if they didn't acquire at least one relief pitcher before Sandy Alderson left Maryland where the winter meetings are being held. So Mets fans should stay tuned because this is a really exciting time for baseball fans. This has been Aaron York from Mason Avenue Audio. that does it for another installment of amazing avenue audio thank you all so much for listening we really appreciate it please go to itunes you can rate review and subscribe to the show or you can do that in stitcher or your podcatcher of choice but the rates reviews and subscriptions really do help us get the word out there about the show you can also download it directly from blogtalkradio.com and you can find it at amazingavenue.com where you can find all sorts of mets information analysis and more you can also find the show 
and the site on uh, Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Amazing Avenue. You can email the show, podcast at AmazingAvenueAudio.com, and you can follow all of the contributors on Twitter. I am at Brian Nizanap, Steve is at Steve Saipa, Greg is at Greg Karam, Chris is at Chris McShane, Aaron is at APY5000, and the returning contributor, Milo Taby, can be found at Milo Taby. That's at M-I-L-O-T-A-I-B-I. My son Ben, who you can hear in the background, is not on Twitter just yet, but let's say he'll be at Ben Salvatore uh, in, you know, 15 or 20 years when Twitter no longer exists. Anyway, thank you all so much for listening. We'll be back next week and every week right here on Amazing Avenue Audio. And so, until then, let's go Mets.